1: It shouldn't be. A piece of what? (laughs) Peace is difficult. Peace is not easily come by, nor is it easily attained. Um, I think oftentimes we think peace must come uh, during peaceful times of life, but one of the things I realize and notice as I get older is that peace doesn't come easily, it actually comes through difficult circumstances and how we weather those difficult circumstances. Today's sermon, as we continue this series called Difficult Peace this month, we're looking at various stories, not only the Old Testament, but going into the New Testament about difficult peace or difficult circumstances that lead to peace. Or I should say that should lead to peace. We're actually going to be backtracking a little bit. Last week you looked at Daniel uh, in Daniel chapter 6 and his being thrown into the lion's pit. And now we're going to look in Daniel chapter 3 at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, I believe uh, Matt last week told you, we we learn these stories often in in the church growing up in our childhood Sunday school classes or children's church. And we look at these stories oftentimes as children's stories. But when you actually look at, at the nature of Scripture, this is for all people at all time and in all places, no matter what stage of life, For age of life you're in. And so when we look at this story again at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I don't want you to check out on this because there's a lot of meaty stuff that we're going to be looking at today. Today's sermon is entitled, Trial by Fire. I want to give you a little bit of an image of what, or give you a little bit of an idea about fire as represented in Scripture God is often represented as fire in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament is represented by tongues of fire resting on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. This fire that Moses saw over this burning bush or in this burning bush that was not consuming the bush but rather was the very presence of God. We see fire as very, not just metaphorical, but representative of God in his very presence. What does he, in the Old Testament, as he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt, he leads them by a pillar of fire by day and a cloud, or a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day. As he's on top of Mount Sinai, his presence comes to rest there and there's this thick cloud that covers the whole top of the mountain, almost all the way down to midway. And at night, it is glowing bright for all to see. In the Old Testament, when, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, when, they, when the fire of God would move, they would uproot the tabernacle, their place of worship, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God would rest. And they would move to where that pillar of fire or smoke would be because they wanted to be with God's presence fire can be consuming or it can be purifying we're going to look at fire today in the context of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego's story so if you would go ahead and turn with me to Daniel chapter three in the Old Testament uh, and we'll get started I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation which is a relatively easier read for most people uh, and easier to understand. And we'll start breaking it down as we go through. But Daniel chapter 3, starting with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar had taken over the territory of Judah, which is the southern region of where Israel used to be. If you look on a modern-day map today where Israel currently is, that's the region around Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and all that surrounding southern territory there. The Babylonian kingdom had been used by God. Nebuchadnezzar had been used by God to overthrow the southern kingdom as an act of judgment for their disobedience. And now the exiles from Judah have been spread about the whole Babylonian kingdom as had been prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah. And in Daniel chapter 3, the exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those were their Persian names. They have Hebrew names. And Daniel have been a part of this exiled people's at the at the capital city where nebuchadnezzar is they have found their way into the royal court as advisors and the highest of officials these exiles who had been taken captive are now in the royal court so let me ask you a question if you were a persian born individual but you and you were also in the royal court because you've Worked your way up the success ladder, if you will, in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And now you see these exiles, these people, these conquered people who are enslaved to the Persians, rising to the level of authority and power. How do you think that would make you feel? Right? How, I mean, in our humanness, we'd say, wait, 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 wait. They should be relegated to servitude in the lowest of service, not in the royal court. But Daniel got the ear of the king, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but all the kings that would follow, many of them anyway, and through different empires. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had proven themselves not only faithful, but very good people to the point to where they caught the eye of the king, and he put them in places of honor and authority within the kingdom. Well, now Nebuchadnezzar is trying to centralize his authority. Nebuchadnezzar, much different than the Persian king, Cyrus, who would come later. Nebuchadnezzar ruled by might and by power. Cyrus ruled by benevolence and by goodness, by allowing freedom. But Nebuchadnezzar ruled by power and a heavy fist. And so he creates this statue says 90 feet tall, more than 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That is a tall, slender statue. If you look at it, Uh, really more than likely what would happen is they would have had a base made out of stone and then a statue made out of gold that would sit on top of that base. And so this image is an image of a man, we believe. But we're not really sure what the image is of specifically. A lot of scholars think it was actually Nebuchadnezzar's image because in those days, emperors of pagan kingdoms would oftentimes consider themselves godlike individuals because God allowed them or their gods allowed them to be in a position of authority and power. And so they have imbued, they felt like they were imbued with a certain level of divinity. And so even in the Roman culture, many centuries after the Babylonians, you would see these temples set up in various different Roman cities where you would do worship where you would worship the emperor. We called this the emperor's cult in the Roman era during Jesus' day and age. And so they would have statues set up not only to the various pantheon of gods, but they would have statues set up of living individuals, i.e. the emperor or the kings to be worshipped. Okay? So a lot of scholars believe this was actually Nebuchadnezzar's image. And so here we are. King Nebuchadnezzar made this gold statue 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, and set it up on the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. You can actually go to this ancient city of Dura today, and there are s- these platforms where statues would have been set. There's one tall one there. If you go there today, archaeologists have found, and they, many scholars think this could be the platform where that specific statue was placed then he sent messages to the high officers officials governors advisors treasurers judges magistrates and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue that he had set up now when you came to dedicate something in those days you wouldn't just sing and dance you would actually worship at that place So all these officials came and they stood before the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes and other musical instruments, bow to the ground uh, to to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. And anyone who refuses to obey will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Okay, this is not some made-up furnace. There are actual furnaces that you can, that archaeologists have uncovered. They are open on the, are these huge caverns. They have a hole in the top. And there's also a side entrance where you could stoke the fires and throw more fuel in there. So when they were going to be thrown into this furnace, in a moment, we'll see, they would have been lowered in or thrown in from the top. And then where the king was sitting, they could see from a distance this large opening where they would have thrown the wood and other things to continue to fuel the fire. Okay? Okay. These furnaces, they would have been multiple furnaces around at that time. They would have been smelting furnaces for liquefying metals and those kind of things. But they were also used as a means of execution and torture in different kingdoms, specifically the Babylonian kingdom. So here's this threat. When you hear all of this, all of you leaders and officials and everybody in the land, when you hear the horn... And all of these musical instruments, and it had to be an amazing sound to hear. Very impressive, but very daunting and intimidating sound. Everybody must bow down and worship the golden statue. So, at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, wherever, uh, whatever the race, nation language, bowed to the ground and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Imagine yourself, I'm very visual. Imagine yourself there that day. The king is enthroned in his high place at the day of dedication at this special location where he would have been. All the court officials, all the royalty, everybody was there, the governors, they had been called in from the whole empire to the dedication of this golden statue. This was a big, big Day and anybody else from the surrounding areas, the people who worked the land that weren't of royal official, uh, you know, status would have come in too and have been a part of this special day. So there would have been t- thousands, if not tens of thousands, of people there in attendance that day. Verse eight. But some of the astrologers uh, went to the king and informed. On the Jews. You know what this is? It's just a polite way of saying they snitched on the Jews. Okay? They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king! You issued a decree requiring all people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and other musical instruments. Well, that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and they do not worship the gold statue that you've set up. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, it says, flew into a rage. And ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refused to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I've set up? Now stop for a minute and listen to me. What is going on here? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's given them a second chance. It was virtually unheard of for Nebuchadnezzar to give a second chance. See, these men must have been valued by Nebuchadnezzar enough that he said, listen, either my astrologers are lying to me or they're telling me the truth. You need to tell me right now what you did. See, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to get them to come into his presence. He could have said, well, throw them into the furnace. But he didn't. So why didn't he? I think there was something about them that was a value to him. And so there they are standing before him, he's questioning them, and he says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and to worship the statue that I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Think of the arrogance in that statement. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not not need to defend ourselves before you. See, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it very clear your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. <laughs> I think, yeah, you know, again, I'm very visual. And so when I think, what is, I know what rage is. So there's anger, there's malice. there's What is rage? Okay, rage is grumpy Gus thrown over the table, right? Rage is this, you get this image of rage that somebody is not just, somebody is rage, right? They're slinging things. They're throwing things. Now it says his face became distorted with rage. What do you think that looked like? I mean I don't know I'm trying to uh, I I don't know what that would look like but I get this picture in my mind you know my mind goes to these really weird places it says his face distorted with rage it's almost like he morphed into this really ugly angry beast Hulk Uh, yeah the Hulk Bruce Bannon he turned green I don't know. But, I mean, he turned into this ugly thing, if you will. Have you ever seen somebody fly into rage? What does her face look like? Is it peaceful? Is it gentle? Is it loving? Have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror when you were enraged? It it contorts, right? All right, I I digress so he flew into a rage his face became distorted with rage he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual okay so it's it's normally hot i mean it's normally really hot it's the nature of fire but now we're going to stoke it and we're going to make it seven times hotter than usual. And then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Now I'm going to stop the story there. You can read on. But there's a point in, the sermon, in this sermon that I want you to understand up to this point. Because the other part is for a different sermon at a different time. I'll just give you a little. They get thrown into the furnace and they don't get burnt and there's not just three of them in there it says there's another one in there that Nebuchadnezzar sees it looks like a son of God walking around in the fire with them and he's kind of starting to panic a little bit it says that the strong men that threw them in there because the furnace was so hot got consumed by the heat that they died on the spot without even touching the flames and that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called to come out of the furnace, the fourth one didn't come out, but they did. And it said not even a hair on their head was singed, nor did they smell like smoke. You remember, you know, when you sit around a campfire, even a small little campfire, you smell like smoke. They didn't even smell like anything. So what's the key point this morning? And here's the key point. Complete trust in God is the, is the key to complete peace peace doesn't come easy you may face fires and difficulties in life and you have a choice what is your choice going to be to trust god or to trust you well i know me i know how i work so i can't trust anybody but myself that's usually the mentality we have as humans isn't it i won't trust anybody else but myself But there is one who is greater than who we are, that is more trustworthy than we are. And though we don't always understand why he does or does not do the things he does or does not do, he is still trustworthy. Do you catch what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said as they stood before the king? Imagine everybody... 10,000 or more people bowing to this statue and these three guys are not being arrogant, they're not being pompous, but they're having to make a choice in the heat of the moment. Everybody's doing it. What are you gonna do? And I guarantee you there was a sense of challenge within them in that moment. What are we gonna do? I mean, we could cross our fingers and kneel and not really mean it and save our lives. I mean, what's the big deal? I've got people relying on me. I mean, if I die, who's going to take care of X, Y, or Z? I, 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 what am I going to do? What, I mean, it's, it's just a, it's, there's nothing about it. It's just a statue. What's the big deal? And we go through, you ever done that? Go through this justification in your own self? trying to say, well, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not, I mean, think of any number of cultural situations we find ourselves in right now. It's, I mean, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is there is one God who is trustworthy, and it's to him my allegiance is owed and nobody else. And I'm not going to stand in front of you and disrespect you but I'm also not going to do what you're asking me to because it pushes that limit. It crosses that line, and I won't go there. The sad truth is, especially within the church, we have too many churches and too many people within our churches that are willing to cross that line in order to save face within the public opinion of our day and age rather than to worship the true God of heaven and earth. Because we say, we, we take God's forgiveness too lightly. You say, oh, he'll forgive me. I, I know, he, he'll let me off the hook on that. I mean, he understands. And so we, we flippantly take what God has given us as a free gift and we make a mockery of it. See, it took Jesus dying on the cross to seal the deal of redemption for you and me, but it takes our choice to step into that by willingly accepting that into our lives and surrendering our lives to him. The problem is we like to take our lives back often. And do what we want to do when we want to do it. And then we give God ourselves other times. Yeah, I'll give you—today I'll give it to you because I feel like it. Or on Sunday I'll give you my life. Or, you know, I've given you my offering. I give money to the church. I serve at this low—we can say all of these things. God, surely that has to account for something. But there are often times in Scripture where I see it's all or nothing— He's not going to take half of you, part of you, 99.99% of you. It's all or nothing. We cannot hold anything back from God. And so Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are standing there and they know this. They know where their allegiance lies. They feel the peer pressure from all the other people in the territory bowing down and worshipping the statue. They know it is the law of the land. And yet, they say, we can't. They're not picketing. They're not bringing up lawsuits. They're not suing Nebuchadnezzar. They're not disrespecting anybody in authority. They're just saying, we can't do this. Not gonna, we're not trying to make a scene. It's not about me. It's always about him. And so, I cannot bow down to this statue because... Because my loyalties are to God and God alone. And I love the faith statement there. Have you ever said this? God is able to rescue me from you, but even if He doesn't, I'm still not gonna do what you're asking me to. See, they knew. That there was a chance that God may say, No, you're going to be consumed by the flames. What kind of faith does it take in God to be able to say, We believe He can rescue us, but even if He doesn't, we're still going to trust Him anyway? It's one of the biggest pieces missing in our churches today in the American culture, in the church. We only want God to do the good stuff for us and when bad stuff happens, we walk away or we curse God or we get frustrated. And It's okay to get frustrated with God, don't, don't mishear me. But we hold a lot of things against God. We get offended when God doesn't do X, Y, or Z the way we expect him to. And rather than trust him and trust that his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are much higher than our thoughts, we give in to the baser instincts that force us to do our own thing instead of waiting upon him so that our strength can be renewed. What are our points today? In this, we see that there is one image. Oh, of course, the the world gives us images to worship. We can worship money. We can worship success. We can worship our cars, our house, our family members. We can put anything we put in a place of position higher than God in our lives becomes our object of worship. And you may have multiple gods in your life depending on where the status of those things are. If you're a gamer, maybe it's your game system. It's your phone. Maybe your phone is your God. Maybe any device that you, you hold near and dear, that if you were to lose it, you'd be like, oh, no. Right? Maybe it would crush you to lose any of these things. Is there anything that you have in life or that you have attained in life or that you desire to attain in life that holds a status of importance higher than your worship of God? That has become your object of worship and your God. Can't say that clearly enough. What is worship? Worship is allegiance. It's trust. It's complete and utter surrender to that thing or person. It's not holding anything back, but giving all. That's what worship is it's a sacrifice of the self to that that we worship. And so there's one image. In this story, there's one image. It's a physical image of a golden statue. You know what's interesting? In that day and age, this may sound strange to us today, but in that day and age, they wanted to make symbols or images of gods to worship. It's hard to worship something you cannot see, isn't it? Yes? Yes? One of the biggest things I hear is if if God would just open the skies and say, here, I'm up here, then I would believe. If he would just do this, I remember back at the church in Ohio when I was pastoring and and you've heard me maybe say this story, but a Vietnam vet, very close friends, became very close friends with this Vietnam vet and his wife and, and his wife's still living. He passed away a few years ago. And, uh, and I had the privilege to go do his funeral. He was a solid believer in Christ before we left. But I'm telling you, in the early days of ministry at North, North Maine at New Song Fellowship there, he struggled. And I started meeting with him on a regular basis. And he would tell me, Brandon, he lost his son in a motorcycle one of his sons in a motorcycle accident when his son was 19, 20 years old. And he started questioning God. The stuff he saw and did in Vietnam, he questioned God. He wanted to believe. He desired to believe. And the first days that we would start to meet together, he'd say, Brandon, I've sat in this lazy boy chair here in my living room, and I'm just all alone and have begged God, could you make the curtain move? Just, just whisp, whisp it out like this, and I'll believe Just show me that you're there. Show me a sign that you're with me. Show me something and I'll give everything to you. See, he's not alone in that. He's not alone in that because I think all of us have come to points in life where we're like, God, just show me evidence that you're there and I'll believe. Stoke the fires of my faith by giving me something tangible. I need it. I want to see it. I want to hear it. I want to feel it. But right now I'm numb. I just need something to go on. We give ourselves over to images that are tangible. We work for a paycheck, and we see evidence of that paycheck at the end of our pay period in our accounts. We go to the gas station, we put gas in the car, and though we may not see the gas coming through the tube, we see the gauge go up. We want something tangible. We want an image of something we can believe in. But the God of the Hebrew peoples, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then through Moses, says in the Ten Commandments, do not worship any other gods. I am the only God there is. And don't make an image of me. What is one of the first things they did when they came out of Egypt and Moses is up on the mountain longer than they thought he should be. He's been up there for 40 days. Aaron, his brother, who is the priest over the people, the people come to him and say, Aaron, Moses is gone. It's been over a month and a half. We want... He's probably not coming. Maybe he died up there, but nobody's allowed to go check. Right? You are the next leader. Go ahead and we need something to worship. Isn't it crazy to think the mountain is covered with smoke and fire? We want to see something. I, I, we laugh but we do the same thing we want an image to worship and they say give us something to worship and he's like okay how about a cow I mean, just, i'm just thinking it could have been a platypus i don't think they had them there in the <laughs> region of egypt a camel even, right? Go, what, it, but it was a cow. And that would have been a standard image to worship. They had worshipped golden images in Egypt. And so he says, all right, bring all, bring all your gold to me. If you got jewelry and those kind of things, I'll melt them down. I'm going to make a cow. And he made a holy cow. Yeah. I Thank you. Yeah, I'm here all week. <laughs> So he made this golden image of a calf on this pedestal, and the people are worshiping, and they're jumping around, and they're singing, and they're, you know, doing their thing. And God's like, hey, uh, uh, Moses, um, uh, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to kill everybody in the valley, okay? (laughs) I'm done. I am done. Seriously, you've been up here for 40 days, and your brother Aaron... People come to him, and they're worshiping a golden cow now. So I'm starting over with you, Moses. All right, your descendants I'll make as great as the number, the stars in the sky, blah, blah, blah. I'm done with them. I'm wiping them out. And Moses says, well, they are pretty stupid, uh, but no, please don't do that. I mean, because you just got us out of Egypt. Your mighty power and wonders are now known across the known world of the day and and the testimony of you has gone out and what will the people say if you brought them into the wilderness and you slaughter every one of them? So if you're gonna do that, just blot my name out of the book of life too. And God says, fine, fine. I mean, technically, I'm not really being too far off base here. And so God gives them another chance and another chance and another chance and another chance over centuries of time. Even when they create these gods to worship and they set these so-called carved images up in the holy places that were reserved for the worship of Yahweh— God still was patient with them because he remembered his promises to their ancestors. There is one image, and whose image does he place his upon? Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And God said, let us create man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we are not the object of worship, but the one in whose image we bear is the object of our worship. And God says, don't create an image because I've put my image on you, and you are an object of my, you, you, you exude my very presence. When you worship me, we are connected as one. This is what this has always been about. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that to the very depths of their heart. They knew that the one in whom their allegiance was due was the only one to whom they would ever bow. So there was one image. There is one choice. <laughs> this is one of them. We want multiple choices, right? Do we like multiple choices? I do. I mean, sometimes it can be overwhelming at the choices we have. You go into the grocery store, you just want a box of cereal, right? But you have a million selections. You can go get a can of pop. Well, what pop do you want? Or Coke. I'm from the South, we call it all Coke, you know? And I just touched my nose. Oh, that was really odd. No, not that kind. I'm talking about the sweet carbonated (laughs) beverage coke like it's it's gonna be like go viral online now he's talking about cocaine no i'm not come back to me it is wackadoodle isn't it but we like choices we like our choices of churches we like our choices of colors of carpet, and we like our choices of music. We like our choices of pastors and preachers. I like this pastor better than that pastor. Yeah, we like our choices, right? And, and there's nothing bad about those kind of choices, except there is a choice that does matter. There is an eternal choice that matters. And there is only one choice to make in that regard. You see, Jesus made it explicitly clear there was no way to the Father except through him. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. Yes, it is very exclusive. Christianity is an exclusive religion. Not because we think we're better than anybody else. Not because we think we uh, should, should you know, impose our beliefs on anybody else. Not because we are judgmental or anything else of the sort. But because we believe that the word of God is true and that the living word, Jesus, was the truth. And that what he says was true. And we have to believe the truth for what it is because otherwise it's a lie. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that God holds all truth in the palm of his hands and that to bow even with your fingers crossed to an image or an idol would be a bad choice because it would be shirking our responsibility as believers in God to even fake it. We have too many fakers that sit in our pews that are going through the motions of religion when Jesus says, I want a relationship with you. And you may not always understand what's going on in life, but trust that I have ultimate control. Trust that I have your good in mind. Even when you don't understand There is but one choice with regard to your eternal security, and Christ is the only choice to be had. In Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's time before Christ had come, their loyalty was to the God of heaven and earth, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They worshipped one God, the same God we worship. And so they would not bow to any other idol. It had to be difficult to be faced with a choice when everybody else is doing something you know you shouldn't do. I mean, kids and young adults, we call this peer pressure. Hopefully your parents, you know, have said, I don't care if 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 little Jimmy jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? Well, yeah, depending on if there's water at the bottom of it. right? I've heard that before. But I mean, the reality is, would you do it just because everybody else is doing it? The sad truth is the majority of people do that. You see it in group think in our culture today. You see the pressure, and I don't mean to bring this up again, but hear me out on this. It's, we still are living in such a hyper-politicized society that you're going to be ridiculed by one group if you do this or don't do this. Or you'll be ridiculed by this group if you do this or don't do this. We see it with vaccines and masks. I mean, we've been doing this for over a year and a half now. And it's like we have so been polarized to say, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Can we get back to this central place of where he's right Okay? Let's let's look what does he desire? Let's get our selfish ambitions out of the way. Let's get our own preconceived notions out of the way and say God, what is right? What is wrong? Because we live in a world fraught with all of these half truths or untruths or opinions and I just want to know the truth. You know the only way that truth can set you free? Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. And when you know that truth, when you know him, you can truly be set free. Does that mean you'll have exhaustive knowledge on every single topic the world throws at you? No. But you can trust in the one who gives you the conviction to do what's right when you are fully surrendered to him. But you have to be completely out of the way. You have to be completely, you got to let your opinions go, your preconceived notions go, and you have to truly lean into him and say, all right, God, what do you desire? See, Paul talks about this in Romans. One person says one day is the greatest day to worship on, and the other thinks another day is more important than that. Well, do we worship on the Sabbath of the Jews on Saturday, or do we worship on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the grave? See, that debate was going on in the early church. You know what Paul said? Doesn't matter. You know, because if somebody's worshiping on Saturday, Yahweh, if they're worshiping God on Saturday, they're still setting that day apart to worship God. If they're worshiping on Sunday, they're setting that day apart to honor and worship God. It's no one day is more important than another, Paul says. And he has this conversation about meat. Should I eat meat? Should I not eat meat? There's meat offered to this idol that you can buy in the marketplace. There's meat. So what, what's, what's more? Should I eat meat? Should I not eat meat? Yes. What, 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 and so there is liberty in Christ, but you don't use the freedom and liberty you have to lord over others. Yes, there are black and white things in Scripture there are things that are nailed down that are unequivocal and non-negotiable. But there is freedom abounding in Christ who says, why do you get so hung up on these silly minutia things that mount to nothing in the kingdom of God? Worship this day, worship that day. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. It's not in the Bible. You know, we've got to get over this hump, and I've probably offended some of you. If I have, please come back in a month. We're going to be going through a series on offense. All right. Uh, the, the reality is you have a choice, and sometimes those choices don't matter, but sometimes they do. In regard to whom you worship, They matter significantly. It is the only choice that matters this side of heaven. Whom do you serve? Whom do you worship? Whom do you love with heart, soul, mind, and strength? Lastly, there is one God. There are not multiple gods. There are not multiple uh, different uh, entities of divine status that we should be worshiping, there is only one God. And he is the maker and creator of heaven and earth. He is the very same God who became a man, dwelt among us. He is the same God who said, because you couldn't do what I ask of you to do, I'll do it for you. And so he stood in the gap with his arms outstretched as the God of heaven and earth took the sins of the world upon his shoulders and finally breathed his last and said, it is finished. Not his life, but the reason he came was to deal once and for all with sin and death, which had plagued the world since the beginning of time. And once he dealt with that, he proved he was who he said he was by three days later raising from the grave. So not only did he conquer sin on the cross, he conquered death through the empty tomb and he was never buried again like Lazarus was, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus raised from the grave. Guess what? He died again and he awaits the day of resurrection. But Jesus rose and he is the first of the resurrected and he proved who he said he was. See, without the resurrection, there's no reason for us to meet on Sundays or any other day of the week as the body of Christ. But because of what he did, we know that he was truly God in the flesh. There is no other by whose name we can be saved except Jesus Christ. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that. And they staked their lives on it. It's interesting to me that whenever Nebuchadnezzar took up the challenge with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember the one statement I mentioned earlier? What God will be able to save you from me? See, his challenge wasn't with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whose challenge, who was he challenging? (laughs) See, a lot of times we think people are challenging us when truly they're just challenging the God whom we serve. So we oftentimes take offense or get our feelings hurt when somebody attacks or comes at us. When the reality is they're attacking the God whom we serve when they attack us. We don't need to defend ourselves. God can defend himself and he can defend us as well. The reality is there is one God and we stand in his very presence. And when we stand in his presence, we bow to no other let me close with this Craig Brian Larson writes on December the 29th 1987 a soviet cosmonaut returned to the earth after 326 days in orbit he was in good health which wasn't which hasn't always been the case uh, in those voyages 5 years earlier however when they sent a cosmonaut up into space Uh, After 211 days in space, this cosmonaut came back, or these two cosmonauts came back. They suffered dizziness, high pulse rates, and heart palpitations. They couldn't walk for a week, and after 30 days, they were still undergoing therapy for atrophied muscles and weakened hearts. At zero gravity in space, the muscles of the body begin to atrophy and waste away because there is no resistance. Do you catch this? There was no resistance. To counteract this, the Soviets prescribed a vigorous exercise program for the cosmonauts while they were in space. They invented these things called penguin suits. It's a running suit laced with elastic bands at every bending point. It resists every move a person makes who's wearing it. Forcing them to exert more and more energy. Apparently, the regimen worked because as they continued to send cosmonauts up and wearing those suits and they come back, they they are just fine when they come back. Of course, we know this now, even with our astronaut and space agency and all that. When there is no resistance, you don't grow strong. When there is no difficulty to overcome, we oftentimes get weak. So why doesn't God remove obstacles in your life? Because he wants you to grow stronger. Why doesn't God take away the thing that most upsets or hurts you? It's not because he's vindictive or hateful, but rather he knows that through his strength and his help, you can become even better and even stronger. Don't let your spiritual muscles atrophy. It's okay to stand against the tide. It's okay to stand for what's right. As a matter of fact, it's worth your life to do it. As our worship team comes forward to close us out today, I guess the question I want to throw out at you is this. Are you having a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment in your life right now? Or have you recently come through one? Are you in the middle of one? Or do you foresee one on the horizon in your life? where there's a choice that needs to be made. It's not going to make other people in your life happy, but it's going to obey what God has called you to. Peace doesn't come easy. Peace is a muscle that has to be stretched. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could stand before Nebuchadnezzar and say, we believe that the God whom we serve is able to rescue us from the fire you want to throw us in. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship your gods. They were exercising not only their muscle called faith, but they said it and they knew it to the depth of their heart that God can, if he so chooses, but even if he doesn't, we're at peace with whatever the outcome is going to be. Do you have a situation or circumstance right now that you're going through, that you're facing, where you're not sure what the outcome is going to be, but you know that you have to make the right choice and stand firm in your faith? Or maybe you're here and you don't, You don't even believe in God or you've not ever made the decision to have Christ become Lord of your life. And now this is the choice you face after hearing a message like this today and hearing the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're standing before the fires of hell. And those are not purifying fires. Those are destructive fires that seek to completely devour you. And you have a choice to step into the fire of God, which is a purifying fire that can make you clean and holy as he is holy. My hope and my prayer for you today is that you would choose the purifying fire of God rather than the fires of hell. And that sounds harsh, I know, but it's truth. Our altars are always open. If you want to be prayed for and prayed with, come to my right, your left, somebody will pray with you. If you want to pray alone and spend some time alone with God, you can come to my left, your right. If you're at home, you can kneel wherever you are in your place of worship there at your home. Let me pray over you. Father, trial by fire is not easy. But God, we know that the fires you bring are purifying. Yes, they are painful at times because they burn off the stuff that's not meant to be there. But they bring purification to the heart, soul, mind, and body. Help us to surrender to the fires that you provide that make us holy as you are holy. Rescue us from the flames of evil that seek to devour our very souls. And remind us the only true allegiance that leads to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. Forgive us where we've sinned and fallen short. Strengthen us, encourage us, give us peace that passes understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.